yeah, welcome to History Homos podcast. It's just it's just one host tonight. It's um, William from England, even though it says on the screen Scott Lizard Abrams. Uh, and our guest guest tonight is Chris Snowden, author of um, The Art of Prohibition. The Art of Suppression. The Art of Suppression, sorry, yeah. It's about Prohibition. Which is a, yeah, it's a history of the Prohibition movement, which I think with the other reading we've been doing lately, it, it fits in really well. Uh, because, I mean, we actually previously did an episode on the American experience of Prohibition, which All is... Right gone into a lot in the book isn't it yeah and it's the main I, wish, one. I wish i'd read it <laughs> before i did that episode because yeah it's really good um yeah it's, it's a really well-researched book and uh i've been listening to it i, I get uh, the epub version and get it to i'm a blue collar guy so i get it read to me while oh I'm really i didn't even hands, know you could yeah. do that okay yeah good. yeah they've got the software to do that now so we get we we absolutely pile through books for this uh i bet you do for, yeah for this show okay. yeah it's great have you, have you read any other books about prohibition well presumably you have if you did an episode um i wouldn't i don't think i've read more i think we it's been, most of the research for that was the ken burns documentary uh, the documentaries and stuff yeah. like that yeah yeah that well, that's very good a while since we did it the ken burns documentary is based on the book by uh daniel ockrent i think he's called uh called yeah. last what's it called Last, last. I want to say last orders. Yeah. But it's not. It's whatever the Americans <laughs> call last yeah. orders. Last call. calling time or something like last, last call. Yeah, that's yeah. It, yeah. Um, well, and that's a very good book. And, and Ken Burns more or less based everything on that. What my book is about, as you know, I've read it. Um, yeah. It's really about how prohibitions get started. So I didn't. I don't go too much into what actually happened under prohibition. Most people know that it was a fiasco. Yeah. Um, and I also looked at the worldwide attempt to introduce global prohibition which very rarely gets mentioned or, or discussed but i think it's really quite interesting and well, then it other is, types of prohibition we've come because whatever sort of political topic you it keeps cropping up in all kinds of political topics because you know it's all it's all part of the same thing now we listened to for one show we listened to a 30-hour lecture series by murray rothbard Right. On, uh, <laughs> I can't even remember what it was called now, but it, it, he talks about prohibition a lot. And the, f the interesting fact that W.T. Stead, British journalist, yes. spook, was a, a big proponent of it and went over to speak in, in uh, Carnegie Hall about it uh, in New York City. Was he? Right. Yeah. And he was the, like the inner circle of the Cecil Rhodes sort of proto-globalist movement. Ah, yeah. So you see, he was the uh, editor of the Northern Echo, which I used to was work he? Years I, I used ago. to, I used, I, I used to buy the Northern Echo when I used to used buy, to buy newspapers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Darlington Stockton Times, I think, part of the same family. Um, but he uh, two minor facts about W.T. Stead. Firstly, he lived on basically on the street that the Institute of Economic Affairs is on, because I walk right. past a little blue plaque every time I go to the nearest pub, and he died on the Titanic. Did he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's big in the conspiracy world, isn't it? The the Titanic, or did the, <laughs> was it the Titanic or was it the Olympic or, and all that? Yes, kind of there was three, wasn't there? Three identical ships, all of which came to a sticky end. Yeah, I think the Olympic had a bent prop, prop shaft or something like that. And oh, really? One yeah. of them got sunk, didn't it, during the First World War or possibly the Second World War? And they're all at the bottom of the sea. I can't remember. The other yeah. one's Britannica, I think. Britannia. I didn't know there was three. I thought there was only two. But yeah, anyway, there you go. 
so yeah, so Murray Rothbard's take on it is that, that, that it was a um a competition between the sort of Protestant and the Catholic yeah out, outlooks on it. And he, he makes a credible case and it also, it, he he says that everything in American politics is is a battle between J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, that that argument that it was a kind of it was basically a what, what Joseph Gusfield called a symbolic crusade. It's a book called Symbolic Crusade, written in the sixties, that kind of rewrote the history of prohibition and has become more or less the standard interpretation now. Which is that he argues it really wasn't about alcohol at all. It was right. what we might now call a culture war issue, actually. Um, Absolutely. So, so it was not just the Catholics versus the Protestants. It was also the people who had families in America for generations versus the yeah. new immigrants, the city versus the Which countryside. Is, yeah. All Which is, again, country. kind of the same thing. The Protestants were been there for generations, were in the countryside, and mm. and the Catholics were yeah. you know, newer no, immigrants. I, who... I, I personally think he goes a bit too far with this because it, it was about alcohol you know, to yeah. a very large extent. It, it, it kicked off um, because women really were sick of their husbands spending all their money on drink and, yeah. and beating them up, which is perfectly reasonable you know, to yeah. complain about these kind of negative externalities. Um, yeah. So it was a, you know, drinking was a, a bigger problem then than it is now. Partly because people have more money now, right? So they don't tend to drink the entire week's wages in, in one session. No. Um, and there probably was a genuine problem with the saloons in terms of them being dens of iniquity. And, and but British pubs were a bit better, but still had the same kind yeah. of issues around being basically the only form of entertainment for most people. And everything would happen there, including, you know, prostitution, including. Um, you know, con men and gambling and, and all sorts of different vices. The confidence game. <laughs> the confidence game, yeah, exactly. Um, and the divvying up of the wages, you know, often they would be divvied up in, in the pub. Yeah. Specifically because um, the employer had a deal with the publican and they knew that the men had spent all the booze there, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, slightly off the topic, but I mean, there was a genuine issue with it, with the saloon. And after Prohibition, one of the supposed good side effects prohibition was that when the bars reopened in 1933 they were a different place right. women were much more welcome they were smarter and so on now if you actually look at photos of saloons from the pre-prohibition era um there's lots of them involved in carry nation who used to go around smashing them up they actually yeah. look quite nice now maybe they're only picking <laughs> the ones you know and all they they smarten themselves up for the photographer but they actually look pretty Classy to me. They got you know chandeliers and all kinds of you know nice things. Yeah, well, she had to have think and, nice things to smash, didn't she? Well, right, exactly. There's lots of mirrors and yeah. and so on for it to smash up. I didn't think they looked too bad, but anyway, I dare say there were lots of you know proper dive bars and um, people who who didn't drink, you know, would rather. It's a bit like bookies now, right? But betting shops now, people who don't gamble. Um, or don't go into betting shops would rather not have so many betting shops around just because they think they'd bring down the character of the high street. So there's an element sure. of that. Um, but yeah, look, it, it, it was very largely about alcohol. Let's be realistic about it. There have always been people who don't like alcohol, same as you've got people today who don't like well, all sorts of things, gambling, as you know, just mentioned, um, smoking, obviously, you know, that's the thing that's now staring yeah. prohibition in the face, vaping. Um, there are the whole yeah, class of things. Yeah, there's a whole class of things. It, it amazes me. 
thousands of years. The currency of banning vaping at this point that I'd say it's more in more pubs than not. It's not allowed. Oh, yeah. I I generally assume it's not allowed. Yeah. And there's no law against it, as you know. Um, it's been ruined vaping, in my opinion, by people vaping very pungent vape juices uh, at very high wattage. You know, unfortunately, well, it, it always it, takes a few idiots to ruin it for everybody else. My sense of it is, for a lot of pubs, is that they'll have what is officially a no vaping policy, but the staff yeah. will turn a blind eye as long as you're not becoming a nuisance. I happen to only vape unflavored liquid, so you can't really smell it anyway. Um, and you can get away with it, I think, so long as you don't show off and, and yeah. start cloud chasing. Blowing, blowing rings. Yeah, all that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I love vaping. Uh, and I just smoke fag flavor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I vape cigarette flavor. But, and I, 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 I wouldn't smoke a cigarette now if you passed me one. They did, you know, because your book does talk about uh, snooze as a, Mm. Cessation aid, I think, because it came out in 2011, didn't it? Your book, so yeah. I guess it's I think vaping existed, but it hadn't really taken it, off. Yeah, it, 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 extent, I, I, I tried it at that point, but it, it wasn't obviously that big a deal at all. But yeah, the, it the, was pretty the, rubbish, the, wasn't it? As well, the chapter on snooze really it, it could be read as a forerunner to what happened with with e-cigarettes. Yeah, very very similar pressures, very similar rhetoric and concerns. People thought it was going to be a gateway to smoking, all this kind of stuff, and it turned out to be a gateway from smoking. Um, and it got banned, which has been increasingly banned around the world, including Australia at the moment, which is insane what's going on there. I mean, how do the, the enforcement of that is ridiculous? It, it's got to be difficult. I know it, Australia is better at banning things because it's it's miles away from anywhere else. What do you think so? They're not making much of a fist of banning vaping, let me tell you. They're on their third cent now to to ban vaping. Vaping, as we know, has never been legal in Australia, right? So nicotine per se is illegal unless it's in tobacco. Wow. Unless it's in the most dangerous, you know, combustible tobacco. Um, It's completely illegal. So it's just classified as a poison. So nicotine vapes were just de facto banned from day one. That hasn't stopped people using them. And a lot of smokers gave up smoking by just importing vapes for their own personal use. Um, and that seemed to be fine. It wasn't really a problem. And, and you know, a lot of people did give up smoking that way. But the government wanted to crack down on that. So they banned the personal importation of e-cigarettes. They can't say nicotine. Yeah. And that didn't work either. And you've now actually got as many people or as a larger percentage of the population in Australia, who have ever vaped than you have in Britain, where vaping right. is encouraged, really, among smokers. And in fact, you've got a higher rate of youth vaping in Australia than you have in Britain. Right, yeah. Uh, and well, it's quite it's high in Britain. Stuff uh, in uh, stuff that's illegal is has an extra cachet, doesn't it? The well, forbidden fruit aspect to it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So now, as of a few days ago, as of the 1st of January, um, all vapes, including um, ones that don't contain nicotine, have been banned. Uh, I'd be very surprised if that works either. It's an absolute uh, object lesson in Australia in in why banning popular things does not work. Um, yeah. Particularly if there's no sort of... If people don't feel any kind of moral obligation to obey the law, they won't do. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will obey the law just because it's the law. You know, we, can, yes. we, can, we might disagree with it or think it's wrong, but generally speaking, you a lot of people at least do believe that for the good of society everybody has to follow the rules 
But when you get such a ridiculous piece of legislation as banning vapes while cigarettes are still available, um, the government lying about e-cigarettes all the while, yeah, at some point you just go, I don't care about vaping more. It's the same with tobacco in Australia. I mean, pack, a pack of cigarettes is some insane... Uh, it's like 25, 30 pounds for a pack of cigarettes in Australia. Wow. Most expensive in the world. And with the best will in the world, people who, you know, people can't afford it. And so they no longer feel any kind of moral obligation to... You're not allowed, the rules. You're not allowed to grow your own tobacco in Australia, right? No, but that doesn't stop them doing it. It's a very, very no, big country. And yeah. they, they, the, the police keep busting these tobacco farms which are literally hundreds of acres i mean just yeah. incredible and they only spot them if somebody happens to fly over it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, so in preparation for this i actually reread um very quickly this morning um natural law lysander spooner and this is this is you can really any all this kind of stuff only exists this prohibition mentality only exists because government exists and it, people will always try to i think there's some people who go into government like to ban things anyway that's what it's that's what government's for and uh, so a nice little excerpt from spooner i made a note of was uh, all attempts or assumptions on the part of any man or body of men whether calling themselves governments or uh, or by or any other name to set up their own commands, will or pleasures or discretion in the place of justice as a rule of conduct for any human are as much an absurdity and an usurpation and a tyranny as would be an attempt to set up their own commands, wills, pleasure or usurpation in the place of any or all of the natural, physical, mental, uh, or moral laws of the universe. For instance, he goes on, you might as well try and legislate the, the laws of mathematics. Because, and, I mean, I think philosophically, I am definitely a Spoonerite. The, the guy, that book is so short, <laughs> you could read it in half an hour. Oh right, maybe I should read it because I've never read any. I've never read any Rothbard either. I'm quite yeah. a bad libertarian. I've never read any Ayn Rand. Well, I've <laughs> never read any Ayn Rand, but it's just, I, yeah, Ayn, Ayn Rand's a libert a libertarian. Like, yeah, I don't really. It's a state, very statist version of libertarianism. I mean, objectivism. Like, like, yeah, but it's like it's like well, objectively, it's better to have a state. I mean, like, it's a difficult philosophical question because. I don't think that anarchy would necessarily work. No, but I, don't think it would. I think it's a the philosophy behind it is a good excuse not to. Ex, it's a it's my rationale for not uh, accepting usurpatious power. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not. I don't propose any solutions as to how we should live. I just say no, this is bullshit. I <laughs> yeah. I honestly just think you can use normal mainstream economics to to. You, you can justification. You know, I, I see libertarianism really as applied economics, and it's very easy to talk about what a failure prohibition is and all the unintended consequences. And it's important to make those points, particularly if you're yeah. trying to persuade people who are undecided. Exactly. But fundamentally, it's just unethical. It's immoral. It's wrong. You're stopping people yeah. enjoying themselves. You know, what gives you the right to do that? 
Um, yeah. you, you, you don't know better than other people. You know, I don't believe that these public health people actually know, know better than other people. I think they, they know much less. Um, there's no yeah. way they could know what, what everybody wants because everybody wants different things. Um, so I just, you know, there is you know, uh, uh, certainly a role for the state in mainstream economics. There is a role for interventions if there are negative externalities and stuff. You know, we're not against Pagovian taxes. We're not against regulation. We're not against banning the sale of certain things to children. But when it comes to banning the sale of certain things to adults, there better be a very, very good reason why right. you're stopping you know, people exchanging freely in the market. Yeah, I, I think there's a contradiction, though, between because my I don't really call myself a libertarian because I think that's like an Americanized version, which it does stress the economic, you know, it's basically Rothbard and all these guys wrote all these books to and, and even Milton Friedman's considered libertarian in, in mainstream circles, I guess. I guess in IEA circles, mm. he certainly isn't. <laughs> but. Um, but that's um i think i'm more of like an english english style liberal yeah like uh, which is and again, that, yeah. yeah that didn't sort of i just got it from my dad really that right. it, it's i've got i'm not very well read in it but it's um and that wasn't particular that wasn't anarchist or against the state per se but it did acknowledge that there are certain god-given rights and that natural law is a thing yeah yeah kind of yeah i mean yeah. classical liberalism and libertarianism are very similar mm. um it's just the americans took the word liberal and meant to you know turned it into meaning yeah. the exact opposite <laughs> of what it originally meant so we had to come up with a different word yeah. for it um so they have to use the word libertarian because otherwise it's confusing you go around calling yourself a liberal True. to mean almost anything right um yeah, yeah. so yeah the american libertarians tend to take it to to the extreme in some instances, yeah. right? If you watch the the um the footage of the libertarian convention every year, it's yeah, hell it goes viral because it's it's hilarious, right? You've seen you've seen the thing about the did you see the lineup of uh, various libertarians? They're running to be the leader of the Libertarian Party. Uh so oh. Rand Paul was one of them, right? And they go along the line and say, Do you believe you should need a, a license to drive? And this guy goes, no, absolutely not. You can say, next guy goes, what are you talking about? You don't need a license. Third guy goes like, what, I'm going to need a license to put bread in my goddamn toaster? Of course not. And Ram Paul just goes, <laughs> well, I do think you should have to show some degree of competence before you get behind the, the wheel of a vehicle. And he just gets booed. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody there. Right? Well, so, the, so they can go too far. They're but, a libertarian. Well, I mean, they're, they're sort of, it attracts all the, cranks like the sure. people who want to legalize child pornography and all that kind of exactly, stuff. Exactly, exactly. Because it then becomes like a, a thought experiment. Well, how far are you yeah. going to push this? And I think most people can go, look, maybe consistency is a little bit overrated in some instances, yeah. right? The only reason is, as far as I'm concerned, that you would pick any kind of ideology is because you think it's going to lead to the best mm -hmm. outcomes. But th there is a negative externality of like blue-collar guys like me getting squeezed because of globalism. And a lot of these American economic orientated and IEA guys, the same, no offense, <laughs> will mm -hmm. argue that, um, oh, well, that's just, you know, it's making everybody better off, you know, goods are cheaper, blah, blah, blah. But it, uh, and whilst also taking an anti war stance, which I'm not quite sure the IEA does, but uh, the I certainly do. Uh, 
it fails to acknowledge that globalism relies on massively on US military spending to keep the keep the US Navy going. So, I mean, there well, are, you can find it. I'm not sure. I'm a, yeah, I could. I well, they say it does. Saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say a lot. Of, yeah, people say a lot of things to justify yeah. the military-industrial complex, I guess. But um, I don't think you need to have America being the policeman of the world in order to trade with different countries. No, I don't think you do either. But the, under the under the sort of the system that gives us that enables us to have the sort of highly leveraged financial system and uh, debt slavery imposed on everybody. Like this whole system of rocketing property prices and, and, you know, attendant high cost of living that pervades the West is all, it's basically all run to the advantage of the banks who are financing both sides of every war and always have done. And it's just the, I mean, it, from a you know a guy at the bottom of the heap kind of point of view, it's. I mean, I'm I'm as classically liberal as they come, but I just don't think that globalism would ne- necessarily look or like global free trade doesn't have to be globalism. Is what I'm saying. It can be right. Just, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, are you talking about immigration now, primarily? Well, immigration is not really one of my hot button issues. Or, it is in our audience, uh, but yeah, there's. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned house and, prices, right? So, what, what's the well, link between globalization and, and house prices, other than you've got uh, populations growing because of immigration? Well, it's all the fake money is doing that. Oh, right. On which globalization is also built. You, you've got um, stuff like, and a lot of it's gerrymandered. Like they've also banned effectively banned production of aluminium in Europe, for instance. That's been exported to India and China and what the places where they do it in a more dirty fashion. And then it has to be shipped across the world. But yeah, I mean But we keep don't we keep coming back to the problem being government here rather than Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I I, I just we could we could build more houses if the government allowed us to. So true. We could, yeah. And, and also some, that, some uh, people would say, well, you, you know, it's a supply and demand issue. Therefore, if you cut immigration, then house prices will go down. Which, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's true. It works both ways. Yeah. Um, the only thing is, immigration, generally speaking, is pretty good for the economy. I'm not in favour of open borders by any means, but um, generally speaking, it's a it's a pretty good thing. Um, and we could very easily build enough houses for everyone many times over if we just. Not even got rid of the green belt, but just cut it back to where it was thirty years ago. You know, so well, you got yeah, that, sure. and then yeah, the the whole you know net zero stuff and outsourcing manufacturing to China. And so absolutely, these are these are political decisions. These are government decisions. They don't yeah. need to be that way. I mean, yeah, I mean immigration though. I know I, I would like to speak up against immigration, but I don't have a lot of really great arguments at the tips of my fingers but from the guy who is competing against a load of immigrants which i mean does it matter to the the vast majority of people whether the line go up the, the people have been conditioned into thinking oh my my house is worth a million pounds i'm a millionaire now yeah but it, it's 
it's fool's gold. It's fake money that's all just printed out of nothing. Well, pretty well. I mean, you can still use it to buy things, right? So, yeah, but and it's real it's, when you owe it to the bank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't real it's, one minute before they issued I mean, it to you. What we uh, the housing market is a massive, massive problem in this country, and there's not many problems that wouldn't be at least alleviated by dealing with the housing issue. Which, yeah. as I say, is actually really fairly simple to do. Um, just allow houses to be built where people want to live. Yeah. Um, but the thing about people's houses being worth so much money, yeah, yeah, you're right. People do think I'm a millionaire, but they still need to live somewhere, right? Yeah. So you can sell your house for a lot of money, but you have to buy another house, and that's going to be um, similarly expensive, except for the people, the boomers. Let's yeah. let's let's name names it. The boomers yeah. sell them, they downsize, and then they they take the cash. Yeah. The whole housing boom of the last 30 years has been a one-off transfer of wealth from essentially the younger generation to the older generation. Yeah. Um, and I say one-off because it's not going to keep going. It cannot keep going. And I know, I know some people have said this. I've been saying that for years. <laughs> yeah, I said this 20 years ago. And <laughs> I thought there'd be a crash coming, and, and there wasn't. But it's just mathematics, really, that there, there comes a point, and we're very, very close to it, and in fact, we've exceeded it for many people, where you literally cannot buy a house. And if people literally cannot buy a house, the house prices can't keep going up. Now, that's not to say they're going to crash. I don't think they probably will crash. But they, they will not keep going up and certainly won't keep going up at the rate they have been in the last 20 or 30 years. So it's well, that, been a nice learner for a certain cohort of people. Yeah. But that's it now. And everybody henceforth unless there is a crash and it's been an excellent earner for the banks don't forget because everyone's mortgage payments are way higher and yeah well when when the crash does yeah when the crash does come the banks are going to end up holding all the land well like i say i don't think really realistically the, the, the crash will come um and even when you've had house price crashes in the past it's not like the entire you know not everyone has to has to has to sell up and those who do sell up you know, very, very easily find a buy. It's just that they sell at 10, 20% less than they, they w- sure. would have liked to. But people do need to understand that, you know, this whole thing of like buy a house as an investment, it's the safest investment you can get. It, that's That's gone. I mean, it might be a safe investment, but it's not a moneymaker anymore. It can't be anymore because the, the difference between wages and house prices is now so vast that there isn't any room for growth because people literally cannot afford to buy houses. Um, so that's that's the end of that. But some people have obviously done very nicely out of it, and I'm not a, I'm not a big one for worrying too much about inequality. But the 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 wealth inequality has been greatly um, worsened by by yeah. this whole thing, and also the intergenerational inequality. Because what's happening in practice is a lot of these boomers they are selling up or downsizing, ending up with hundreds of thousands of pounds. And they give a lot of it to their kids. I mean, either while they're yeah. still alive or as inheritance. Um, and that kind of does entrench the you know, wealth and quality in society. It does give people a, a much, much bigger um, helping hand relatively early in life against someone whose parents rent. And that does yeah. concern me. Yeah, well, I mean, I can remember that the, uh, I don't really follow current affairs much anymore. Because it drives me insane. Just look back, look back in history. Exactly, it's, it's way better. Yeah. Um, wait until somebody's written a book about it. Because whatever they're telling you about on the news, what's happening now is bullshit. It's a lie. We have a a, a regular guest on the show is a, a 
Texan lawyer, goes by the name of Legal Man. And uh, he's, he, he said he has a maxim which we've adopted, which if something's on television for more than 10 minutes, it's a lie. <laughs> Some, sometimes they accidentally let the truth out. <laughs> And that, but they'll soon they'll soon change the news agenda when they find out it's true. I very rarely watch the TV news anymore. Yeah, years ago I would watch it most nights, you know. And nowadays, on the odd occasion when I happen to flick it on, I'm just appalled at the standard of it. Both both how dumbed down it is, yeah. and also the the general slant: what's being covered, what's not being covered. Oh, I sound like which is the main. That's the main thing that makes it a lie: is that the the stuff that's good. Like for instance, yeah. I, I mean the October the 7th thing that just went off in uh, Palestine that was yeah that was that was a bad thing that happened but nobody knows what's been going on there since 67 and especially since 2014 that it's just it's a it's a bad it, you know people have uh, people in this country like to say that if it ever got occupied we'd fight to the last man well they're just doing that yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've got to say, Israel, the whole area, actually, a whole part of the world, I've made a conscious decision from quite a young age not to pay any attention to it. Not because I don't think <laughs> Good it's idea. important. Not because I don't think it's important. I'm sure it's very important. And obviously, I, I saw the October 7th stuff, and that was that yeah. was horrendous, what I guess was happening in Gaza. Now it is horrendous. Um, but, you know, I just muted the relevant words on Twitter. It was just overwhelming. I don't understand what's going on there. I don't think many people really do. Um and I always find it a little bit weird that so many people are so passionate about it. Do you know what I mean? Because there's a whole load of countries in that neck of the woods, and they're all yeah. pretty dreadful. <laughs> and sure, I certainly yeah. don't think Israel is the worst among them. I think it's one of the, the better among them, probably. Um, and so why certain people on the left in particular seem so completely preoccupied with Palestine and Gaza and Israel, um, I have to suspect that well, there must be something a bit anti-Semitic going on. That you're so well, preoccupied with, like the only democracy in the area. Why not Libya? Yeah, Why I mean, not Syria, all... men. Yeah. Well, yeah, I get, I, I see that that point of view, and obviously, you know, you know, holding yourself up as an expert on it, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the sort of you know, burying children alive isn't the way to isn't the way to combat anti-Semitism necessarily. I would say, but yeah, no, yeah. I'm not saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm just saying yeah. that there's a whole lot of places over there which but like, it, are it, dreadful things going on all the time, and most of them get ignored, including by me. Yeah. Right? I'm saying yeah. absolutely saying yeah. I ignore this part of the world because it's too complicated, it's too yeah. depressing, and I've got other things to read about. Whereas most people seem to be very similar to me in that respect, except they're very, very heavily involved emotionally with this one particular country and i think that's a bit weird yeah well in america, i guess for from an american point of view which most of our audiences it, it makes sense because they pay for it <laughs> right yeah they pay for a lot of things don't they yeah. yeah but yeah they pay for yeah they do yeah they pay for all the wars basically don't they because yeah got, but maybe not maybe not for much longer if trump gets it yeah well i, I mean if Trump gets in where <laughs> prison. <laughs> that, I mean, that's a whole, that's a funny uh, angle, isn't it? But I mean, it's it seems to me pretty to have been demonstrated that democracy doesn't mean you know you can say 
Israel or, or especially the, the United States or or the UK. I mean, what what's really to choose between the the political parties in the UK? What's the Conservative Party conserved in the last however many years it was? Not it's a lot. Been, it's been unbelievably poor. And 14 you years now, you know, 14 yeah. years. And I just think that uh, it looks nailed on that, you know, the Tories are going to get kicked out uh, this year at some point. Yeah. And I think we're going to see a whole load of books from former cabinet ministers and indeed prime ministers, the conclusion of which will be along the lines of, we had a long time in power. And looking back, we had a long time in power. Exactly. And I didn't, I didn't do any of the things I got into politics yeah. for. I didn't do any things that I wanted to do. did a lot of things I didn't want to do, actually. I don't really know how that happened. And yeah. they'll moan about the blob and the civil service and lefty lawyers and, and yeah. all this kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's funny. People I, I, won't have much sympathy. I won't have much sympathy. You've got a chance no. to do something. Boris Johnson was moaning in the Daily Mail the other day about um, how you can't buy wood to put on your fire anymore. This is something that happened. Under yeah. he was literally the prime minister when this happened, and he didn't seem to have noticed at the time. He's going, "Why can't I burn my Christmas tree?" And yeah, that kind of article from Boris Johnson was fine in the Spectator of the Telegraph a few years ago before he was prime minister. But once you've been prime minister and you yeah. ditch all your so-called principles, don't do anything vaguely libertarian. In fact, do an unbelievable amount of very libertarian stuff. Yeah, it, yeah. It, we, I'm not. I have no sympathy. You know, we no. we don't have any power. These people had all the power. They had 14 years to do something, and really, they only made the country worse. Um, it's very difficult for the for the Conservatives to. No, I mean, I, I don't see how. I mean, I, I don't see how the, how any. I think the only Conservative movement in in the UK and pro, I, well, I don't think know about the UK, but the only Conservative, genuine grassroots Conservative movement that's got any any sort of momentum behind it is Islam. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, people say, "Oh, we're going to end up living in a caliphate." I think, well, I think I'd probably be better than this. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's kind of the gist of um, uh, Hulabek's book, Submission. Is that you know the Islamists take over France, and he just goes, "Oh, I'll be an Islamist." (laughs) They're going to keep me. They're going to give me a job in university. I'm going to get a few wives. It's it's all right, you know. Someone like me, it's going to be okay. (laughs) I'm not sure I agree with that, but it's a it's a nice bit of satire. Uh, look, Labour obviously know better. Um, no, it's just the same. See what, 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 what Labour do when they get in power. Um, Keir Starmer has, yeah, people used to say that Tony Blair was, you know, trying to be all things to all men and was insincere and all that. But actually, Tony Blair was, well, very principled compared to Keir Starmer, who lied yeah. his way into the leadership. I mean, told the members things that you know, every single pledge he made. Uh, he's he's done a complete 180 on you know he, he basically tricked the Corbynistas, which is kind of funny um but you do want then wonder well hang on you're saying the exact opposite now as what you said two or three years ago when you were quite happy sat around the shadow cabinet table with jeremy corbyn how will we be sure you're not going to do another 180 when you become prime minister yeah i, I don't think it'll make any difference who's i'm not losing any sleep about a, a labor government it, in fact i would say the, this 14 years of Conservative government we've had has been worse than the Labour government that preceded it. I, I mean, I don't oh, vote anymore. Sure. I've, ne- I've, I've never voted Labour. I have voted Conservative at, at various points, but I won't be voting for them again. The, the, the 
they've blown it. That's I think that's what a lot of people think. Yeah, I've actually voted for for both of them in my time. Um, and I agree with you that Conservatives have been worse than the last Labour government. The question is whether they've been worse than what Labour would have been in if they'd been well, that, in power at the same time. Because you have to remember, these last 14 years have coincided yeah. with the world losing its mind you know, yeah. in all sorts of different ways. Um, I think probably Labour will be marginally worse, but they'll be very constrained in what they can do in terms of spending. Uh, and in a way that might make it, Worse because they'll double down on the cultural war stuff and the many states. What did they call that uh, lady prime minister we had for a fortnight who had like a Britain? Yes, because she came out. This is what I'm talking about, right? Okay, with the the sort of financial institutions wanting to keep this bubble going. Mm. Because it was they who brought her down, wasn't it? With the. basically said oh well we can't do what you're telling us to do without breaking this financial rule and if and if you if you do it we're yeah we'll do it if you tell us to we're all going to go bust and she had to quit is the sort of well that's one way of looking at it yeah yeah Uh, and uh but she she was going she was going to start extracting fossil fuels we're going to you know do things to do yeah yeah it was a bit of an america first but britain's first type uh agenda that she had and it's like no you're not doing that <laughs> it was it was reaganite really yeah because uh, it was all based on just cutting taxes and yeah hoping that the economy would grow which isn't a particularly bad way of going about it at most times it's just that she did it at the worst possible time she did it at a time when really we didn't want growth because we wanted to get inflation down yeah. you know and uh, we haven't had a recession as such quite technically but traditionally, in in practice, the way you get rece- uh, inflation down is you you create a recession by whacking up interest rates amongst other things. Um, and she just written a blank check essentially for people's gas and electricity bills, which was at the time estimated to cost sixty billion pound. Government was already uh, borrowing well over a hundred billion pound a year um, on top of the colossal amount it borrowed during COVID. And then she comes out and says, also we're going to cut these taxes and we're going to borrow more money to to to, to do it um and then quasi quartang a day or two later says uh, you know these tax cuts are only the start and they didn't make any pledges um about well we're going to cut public spending she said we're going to stick to the existing public spending plans um and that quite understandably put the the bond markets in turmoil and these guys weren't conspiring against her it's just that if you're going to lend money to somebody uh, and inflation's moving towards 10%, and you've got a prime minister who's going for growth and that is essentially introduced inflationary policies, you're going to want a lot better interest rates on the money you, you lend the British government, right? So, so right. It, bond deals went up, interest rates went up. And then the thing that I don't think anybody or very, very few people could have expected was the pension industry starts selling off bonds because yeah. they had essentially banked on... Uh, low interest rates and low low bond deals forever. Essentially, it's a classic, you know, classic mistake. Just like the, you know, two thousand eight Oliver again. The, you know, this time it's different mentality. And so, in order to pay off the people, well, it's um, next time we'll get bailed out again. Mentality is what it is. Well, yeah, sort of. And they <laughs> kind of did get bailed out because the Bank of England then started buying up bonds to try and keep the price at a, a relatively sensible level. Um, but that was a, a very bad look 
right? In the end, actually, the Bank of England made money because when they when they sold those bonds on later, they actually made a profit. Not many people know that, um, right. and you can't claim that this is you know a, a, a deliberate idea by Liz Truss. It wasn't. It was it was a cock up. The IEA has got the blame for it because supposedly we wrote the mini budget. This is the meme that right, goes okay. around that <laughs> we, we were personally responsible for this, which we weren't. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so that was you know very bad news. Bad news for the IEA, bad news for the country, and bad news for free market economics because it gave free market economics a very bad name. And well, I, uh, the thing is though that so in, if it, if we live in a real free market. I wouldn't have had any problems with my energy bill because I'd have been able to buy energy made out of Russian gas. Yeah, well, yes. I don't, if you could negotiate yeah. a, an individual deal with Putin about it. <laughs> well, it's not a free market, is it, when it goes through all these greasy hands? like, And no, I still think it's the British that blew up that pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I'd love based to know on, who did. You think it's the British? Just based on the fact that the British have been so into this Ukraine thing, and, and really? they like really it. wanted to keep it going. But obviously, it's Kibo on principle of Kibono. It's obviously the Americans have benefited from it because they're selling all their gas to Europe and the UK. Yeah, it, it's a very interesting one. I'd like to know more about it because there's quite a few very you know, plausible suspects. The Ukrainians could quite easily have done it. It's exactly the kind of thing the Russians would do, even though it doesn't make any sense, because the Russians love a bit of chaos. They just do random things to try and confuse people quite successfully. You're right that the British, in, in principle, could have done it, although we probably would have cocked it up. Uh, and the Americans had a motive as well. Yeah. We'll, well probably I mean, never know, but it, yeah, it is. Seymour Hersh says the Americans did it. Yeah. And has some quite do. convincing uh, stuff to back that up. But And the polls... The polls are covering it up, apparently. Yeah. But their end, that's that news came out today. So oh, really? the, there's one theory that it was the Ukrainians did it with Polish help. I remember at the time there was flight tracking data of a of a helicopter leaving a Polish airbase and hovering over the site of the explosion for some huh? time just before it happened. Right. But you know a lot have, more about this than I do. Clearly. That could have been anybody, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it doesn't really matter who it was. The fact is, it happened, and it was bad. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's uh, it's very amusing that the this again, contrary to free market globalist principles, you've got all these sanctions against Russia. They've got solid economic growth, and uh, and there's, they've got no sort of domestic unrest meanwhile germany uk everywhere yeah. everywhere that's applying the sanctions us they're absolutely in turmoil well us is doing okay economically well, i mean yeah and they're selling a so. lot of they're selling a lot of gas to us they're selling a lot of gas yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, certain people in the us are doing all right yeah yeah I mean, sanctions don't really work, do they? I mean, name me one time sanctions have ever worked. South Africa, I guess, at a push, you could say that put pressure on them to get rid of apartheid, maybe. Yeah. But the rest of the time, it just makes normal people hungry and, you know. Yeah, I mean, like, the Churchill organised a blockade against uh, Germany, didn't he, for years after the, after the, after World War One caused... Hundreds of thousands of people to starve to death. 
Uh, after the war, did it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, they kept it. They kept a blockade in place. No, it? that didn't sound like Churchill's kind of thing at all. He was all about being well, magnanimous in victory. We had a well, blockade during the war. Well, they it was more than the Germans had a blockade on us, wasn't it? Really? I mean, they nearly worked. Second World War, the you know U-boats and so on. If you call that part of the sanctions regime, that very nearly worked. Well, yeah. Well, that was a sanction. It's more like warfare, yeah. isn't it? Really? <laughs> I would say more beers into warfare than sanctions when you yeah. blow up merchant navies. Yeah, I'm I'm not well enough versed in uh, in the weird conspiracy stuff to 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 spit any of it. Well, out, but... <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's true from what I've heard so far. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. If my co-host was here, he'd have it all on all the tips of his fingers. So yeah, the um. Getting back to the book. Going back to history, yeah. Yeah. We we had prohibition uh, of alcohol in America from, what was it? Uh, 19, 19, 1920 to 1933. 20 to 33. Which I'm a big P.G. Woodhouse reader, so you can like you can read his, in his novels and, and short stories, you can track publication date as whether prohibition existed. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> He's another one I've never read in. He goes, oh, you're, oh, you're missing a Shameful. Shameful. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it was started ostensibly as like a feminist, sort of quasi-feminist religious crusade to stop men from having any fun, really. Can, can <laughs> oh, you imagine? Oh, like, domestic violence, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because what doesn't get talked about is how these guys, while they were at work, were down a flipping coal mine or some unspeakable, horrible thing where they could get crushed to death at any moment. And then going home sober to a house with a discontented woman and six children in it. Yeah, a nagging <laughs> religious wife. Yeah, you, you, you want to go and have a couple of beers with the boys don't you and well that's card or something that's that's right as well of course yes um but yeah it, then it then blossomed into a much more professional organization in the anti-saloon league sure and it's interesting it was called the anti-saloon league because it should really be called the anti-drink league the anti-alcohol league the temperance league something like that it wasn't yeah. they called it the anti-saloon league partly because as i said before the saloons had a particularly bad reputation and even people who drank would be, were quite happy to see the back of the the working class saloon yeah. Um, but also because it actually deliberately concealed what their real agenda was. Exactly. And so right up until the, the, the 11th hour, um, people were voting for prohibitionist candidates and, and, and supporting the prohibitionist cause, assuming that they would at least be able to have a beer, right? Um, or some cider or maybe a bit of wine. Yeah, lots um, of wine with dinner. It was just assumed this was really about hard liquor and saloons. And yeah. um, and when the 18th Amendment was passed, because, of course, this was a change the Constitution. You know, incredible, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, it's worth interjecting that it's kind of like an early version of cancel culture was invented to make this happen. Right. That... Yes, with the pressure groups. Right. So the Anti-Saloon League was, many people would say, I think probably rightly, it was the first real pressure group. There's a difference yeah. between a lobby group and a pressure group. The, the difference is simply the application of pressure. So these yeah. guys would essentially blackmail politicians into yeah. uh, taking a, a, a the dry ticket, as they, as they called it. And these guys would say, look, we've got a lot of members in every church in the state. 
Uh, we know you drink. We don't mind you drinking. Just don't do it in public and say that you support prohibition and we'll get everybody off the pews and they'll vote for you. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really that simple. It was just, um, yeah, we've got a, a huge number of voters here. They'll vote yeah. for whoever we tell them uh, to. But they're only even more so if you, if you don't do that, we'll get them out to vote against you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that's that's where the pressure came from. And this yeah. is quite a new thing. Um, and you could say it's democracy in action up to a point. If people are that bothered about a single issue, I guess it makes sense for yeah. you know for, for politicians to become single issue candidates. Um, but yeah, that's really how they achieved it. And then when the 18th Amendment was ratified, which happened incredibly quickly, considering you need two thirds of the states to, to, to vote for these things, um, then you had to introduce a piece of legislation, which is the Volstead Act. And the Volstead Act was much, much more draconian than anybody really expected, including a lot of you know, anti-Saloon League members. It was assumed that beer, for example, would, would be okay. And it yeah. wasn't. They, they, they set the limit of beer of 0.5%. Um, yeah. So essentially banned it. Right? That's what we would call alcohol-free beer today. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and banned the you know, transportation over over lines, importation into the country, everything pretty much, except for a bit of home brewing, which you could get away with. Um, but only, I think, for, for, for beer and cider. This is really to keep the farmers happy. They, they could carry on making their cider. And a bit of sacramental wine and a few things like this, which later became massive loopholes, right? So there, were, there, was, there, was, there was an exemption for, for medical alcohol. Uh, Winston yeah. Churchill famously has... Uh, got a letter saying this man needs to have a drink for yeah, the good I've of his health that, yeah. when he when he goes around twitter every six months there's a there's um, a photo yeah. start of it in boris one of jo boris johnson's books that i read oh really right yeah. oh, the, the churchill factor yeah so yeah a lot of people exploited these loopholes but generally speaking um if you were rich you could get around it if you were poor you you struggled to get around it yeah, it's um, funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> it often does seem to work like that. Lisa McGear wrote a very good book called The War on Alcohol about 10 years ago. And and she she calls it The War on Alcohol because she's drawing a direct parallel with The War on Drugs. Yeah. And the kind of the, the... One of the arguments, particularly for on the left against War on Drugs, is this is a form of class war. Yeah. Right? It's not a war on drugs, it's a war on people. And in particular, it's a war on ethnic minorities and the poor. Uh, and they tend to suffer the worst with, with the war on drugs. They tend to suffer the worst with everything, which is why people try not to be poor, right? But um, yeah. they they got penalised by the war on drugs. And as she shows in her book, um, got really heavily penalised by um, by the prohibitionists uh, in various different ways. Like the Ku Klux Klan suddenly became very anti-alcohol, for mm. example. There was a lot of you know, raiding people's houses, dragging away anyone you didn't like. Um, really, you know, Terrible. And and also, as she points out, kind of it was the start of the the US prison state and the US surveillance state, um, yeah. as well as the start of organized crime in America. Yeah, yeah because it was a big the, turning point. The first phone taps were right. Uh, because of prohibition, weren't they? Yeah, the FBI came out of it, I think, in, in, in one form or other, because there was organized crime. So then you suddenly need to have an agency to deal with the organized crime. Yeah. And then after prohibition ended, they got into got into drugs. And as I say in my book, you have a lot of the same characters who were uh, lobbying for prohibition, then switched to um, let's ban opium, let's ban cannabis, let's ban cocaine. Yeah. And also, which I don't mention in that book, but I do mention in another book called Verbal Glove Iron Fist, The History of Anti-Smoking. Um, and the Anti-Smoking League, uh, the, sorry, the Anti-Cigarette League, 
came out of the same movement. So once prohibition is won, they're right, right, what's yeah. next? Let's go for yeah. cigarettes. And no, that's um, very interesting. You, you, you've got a chapter on the global effort to, yes, because after the, uh, I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah. After the, after the success, of, well, it, the, when the riding the wave of prohibition has just been introduced, Eighteenth Amendment's just been passed. They say, right, okay, we're going to prohibit this muck all over the world now, all over the world, and, because uh, the rest of the world is a threat that. to America. This was yeah. a thing. So initially. Prohibition was like statewide. The first prohibition was way back in 1851 in Maine. Maine Road in Manchester, where Man City's ground used to be, is named after Maine because of the prohibition movement. There was quite a strong prohibition movement in Manchester. So it goes way back, right? 70 years before national prohibition. And you have this patchwork of statewide and indeed um, town-wide prohibitions, of which there's still one or two. Still in Mississippi, there's still a few dry states, dry counties, this kind of thing. Um, but back then there were loads of them. But the problem with that in a in a country, a federal country like America, is it's really quite easy just to drive over the border. Yeah. So you'd have a dry state and people would start making a lot of money by driving booze in. Um, so the, the, the argument then was, well, we need to have it US-wide. And once they got it US-wide, obviously people were bringing in whiskey by boat. And so it's right, the whole world needs to go dry. Uh, otherwise, this isn't going to work. And they really went for it. And I think a lot of people don't realize how many countries had prohibition in the 1920s. Um, Iceland, <laughs> is a great, one of my favorite facts about Iceland is they didn't legalize beer until 1989, <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible. They, they celebrate with beer day uh, to this day, you know, if you can afford 12 pounds for a pint of beer, you can have a pint of beer yeah. and remember beer, beer day. But um, they legalized the rest of it much earlier. So they had prohibition in the 20s. And then I think in the early 30s, they legalized wine. Why did they legalize wine? Well, because the Spanish said they wouldn't buy their fish anymore unless they started buying their wine. So they legalized yeah. wine. And then later on, they legalized spirits. But it was another 50 years or so before they legalized beer, which obviously sounds very weird. If you're going to ban any of those things on grounds of public health, you'd think it would be hard liquor rather than beer. But their logic for it, believe it or not, was that um, you know, a, a half a pint of whiskey is much more expensive than half a pint of beer. So we'll we'll <laughs> we'll ban. Yeah, <laughs> therefore yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's yeah. like well, you don't drink it at quite the same rate, do you? Anyway, so Iceland had prohibition, Finland had prohibition, um, Sweden very nearly had prohibition, Norway had prohibition of most booze. I think there might have been an exemption for possibly wine or, or maybe beer. Russia had prohibition. Um, and a lot of people think that Russia wouldn't have had a revolution um, had the the workers not been sober. And the Bolsheviks were quite keen on keeping prohibition, but by the mid twenties, we were all falling apart. And so they legalized alcohol to try and keep people. So I didn't happy. realize that I didn't realize that it was the Tsars that had introduced. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. That was a bad move uh, for, for him. Yeah, because <laughs> he got he got murdered by lots of sober Bolshevik revolutionaries. Yeah, New Zealand uh, very, very nearly had prohibition. Australia um, came very close to it. Instead, they settled for closing the bars. Let's just say um, Australia hasn't got it yet. <laughs> oh, it, it'll, yeah, well, it comes back to what you said very near the beginning about the Protestants and the Catholics. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book or not, but there's quite a strong argument for saying that or just observing, really, that the countries that went for the temperance movement and prohibition tended to be Protestant, spirit-drinking countries. Mm -hmm. 
And the ones that tended not to be too interested in it tend to be Catholic wine drinking countries. Yeah. And to this day, I think that split remains, not just on the issue of alcohol, but on the nanny state in general. Sure. If you look at places that have been most draconian about smoking these days, that are most aggravated even about something like sugary drinks, you know, have, yeah. have soda taxes, it's Australia. It's large parts of America, particularly New York and California. Yeah. It's Britain, Ireland, admittedly Ireland is, is Catholic. It's a slight flaw in the mm. in the theory there, but it's the same neck of the woods. Um, they're not wine drinkers, are they? It's not the they're same certainly not wine drinkers, no. And, and Scandinavia. All right, yeah. so these are all basically Protestant countries with the exception of Ireland. Um, they're all fairly hard drinkers, but not of wine. Uh, and Australia and New Zealand as well. Um, it's always these, these countries that are so uptight about these issues, whereas in you know Portugal or Greece, they just don't yeah. really care. Well, I think it, there's a there's a big problem with Protestantism, which I won't go into here because we've been going, <laughs> I don't want to go all night. But like um, we're kind of English Church of England boys, we're brought up to think that we're Protestants, but it's not really a proper Protestant church. It's like a reformed Catholic church in reality, which they've tried to drum into me when I was at my church schools. So, well, well, you know, you can take communion in a Catholic church. So, oh, you're a sort of high Anglican. Well, yeah, that that's exactly. It. But Henry VIII never was never a Protestant. He was a Catholic theologian, and uh, well, he was. Yeah, he'd been well, certainly uh, originally. The priest, was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which I just went. To, what's that beastly-looking palace? Palace um, oh, Court. Yeah, that one. Yeah, <laughs> I went there with my daughter a few. Yeah, weeks I went ago. there a few years ago. It's ugly, isn't it? That wow, I didn't wow, think it was wow. too bad. Uh, well, the grounds were nice, but the yeah. When you go into that first courtyard, you could yeah. just be in a side street down between two <laughs> scuzzy hotels in a Euston <laughs> station. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> anyway, uh, come up and look at Castle Howard if you're thinking of going to Hampton Court. It's I've never been to Castle Howard actually. Yeah, yeah. it's marvelous. It's anyway, I'm just. Uh, Professional Yorkshireman, want to be Jeff Boycott type, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not yeah, also my New Year's resolution, not worth going. To. Yeah, my new my New Year's resolution this year was to uh, boost Yorkshire more. So I've done I've done my bit for this episode. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, one of the things that really shone out to me, I forget the name of the chap that you quoted in the book, but. The, it was one of the early kind of temperance guys from the American movement who was against prohibition because he said, well, no, it's it. And I, I, I kind of agree with this. I like I like a drink, but I don't think there's anything wrong with people swearing off drinking. And, uh, and if you, if you're doing that for religious reasons, then great. I, you know, I applaud you. And, and th but this guy's take on it was, no, we can't have people. You can't legislate morality. People, if people want to have a come to Jesus moment and give up drinking, that's what I'm trying to persuade them to do. But I forget the name of the guy. You probably do. I don't expect you to. Remember. I can't remember. It's a long time ago when I wrote it. I think that's a, that's a great take on it. Really, is that surely promote abstinence as much as you like, and I'll, at least in principle, probably be on your side. I mean, I'm not saying it's drinking's great. I enjoy it. Well, but that should be. You would think that would be the yeah. Protestant outlook, wouldn't you? 
that we're not going to force, but you should be down they to people to make that, that have their own personal decision. I mean, even leaving aside the fact that there's nothing in the Bible that's vaguely uh, temperate. Turn water right? into wine. Water into wine and so on. <laughs> I know I know these people have come up with all sorts of rhetoric and sophistry over the years to try and get around these numerous references to drinking wine in the Bible. Yeah, I, I, but it's very I, difficult. I, I, we, we call them... I mean, I'm not making any words about it. We're, me and Scott, who whose name I've got up on the screen here. Uh, we're about as right-wing as they come, uh, but we do roll our eyes at what we call rightoids. Like I say, oh, you know, you can't eat bread. You know, and so I've got, got, in my circle, I've got some sort of uh, what I would call rightoid. Christians. Are these, uh, what are they, on the paleo diet as well, isn't it? What's, what's you know, the I don't, it Anti-carb? It varies. It's it's whatever I I don't know I it's, it's as there's a certain zeitgeist in certain circles of, of trying to talk me out of ever eating bread again. I said, it's in the Lord's prayer. Yeah, what I'm referring to, like oh yeah, they'll tell you they, certain people will tell you, oh no, bread people that you're not supposed to eat bread. People, it's only a new, it's big, big flour has uh, yeah. created this artificial. It's in the Lord's prayer, mate. It's a Just, staple. Like, yeah, it's a staple diet in this country has been. for good reason. Yeah, it's a staple diet in most of the world, and it's like it's the backbone of civil like bread and beer. I, I used to. I, I don't want to dox myself too much, but uh, I used to work in in a, an industry that was uh, well. I used to work in the beer industry. Let's say I, I used to. I used to knock about this guy who would claim that uh, oh no, beer is the reason people stop being hunter-gatherers when they discovered how, that they could make alcohol but they had to stay in one place because you've got to ferment it and store mm. it and all that and get, mm. get, get I'm not sure about that but I think but, that's, I mean, true. that's true of agriculture yeah, once we invented yeah. agriculture we had to stay in sure. one place I think beer probably came later to be honest but I'll, let's go with it yeah, maybe, yeah but it, the guy was an amusing companion <laughs> <laughs> We just, that we, yeah, we have a um, very strict fact-checking uh, rules on this show. Where uh, if it sounds right and I like the sound of it, it's real. Yes, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was just reading. Yeah, make um, no bones. Yeah, make no bones about it. I was reading my early life by Winston Churchill last week. Have you ever read it? It's pretty. It's quite no. entertaining. But quite early on in that, he he explains that um, he, he decided you know, as a teenager, that if he liked the sound of something, he would just believe that. He wasn't yeah. going to worry too much. I think he's talking about why he believes in religion. He says, yeah. yeah, I've heard all the arguments against religion, and they were quite compelling, but I just decided it was more fun to believe it, so I, I saw it. Yeah. Good. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the best Winston Churchill idea I've ever heard, to be honest. <laughs> he's, uh, because, like, you could, um, I guess it's you can't be an expert on everything and you just also you can't really change very much so no this is it why worry about it exactly i mean i i think this all the time and yeah. i'm in the wrong job really because it really infuriates me you know writing about these awful public health people and reading yeah. this stuff and i most people are completely unaware of it and yeah. and much happy much happier for it yeah. if i could just not, I'd love to go back to doing history. You know, my my original degree was in history. I would have been quite happy doing medieval history and, like you, ignoring the modern world. Yeah, 
But instead, I got drawn into economics and and free market. You know, I mean, economics <laughs> is interesting because it is the study of human action, isn't it? It's, it is the study. It's like this. It the science of human behavior i guess yeah it's it's very but, interesting but it's yeah you should read spooner though read that little spooner yeah, well, because that, yeah. That, what's it called he uh nat- natural law natural law right yeah i'm not sure i really believe in natural yeah. law but again maybe it's the kind of thing that's just worth believing in because you'd feel happier for it for sure yeah well it's basically just the concept that everybody's The way I put it is, everybody's got the right to certain things, like think whatever they want, say whatever they want, yeah. associate with whoever they want, uh, and the duty is to live honestly. Yeah, and as long as you live honestly, by which means you know, don't screw anybody over, don't do any fraud, murder, that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah. So if, it, it's basically just live honestly. This sounds a little. I mean, these are not. If everybody bad, does that, these are not bad principles to go by at all. I mean, it's, it's more or less Christianity without religion, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it sounds a bit like the yes. Freeman on the land, if if taken to its ultimate conclusion. Are you familiar with the Freeman on the land movement? No, not sometimes known as sovereign citizens in America. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sovereign Love citizens. That, yeah. They're hilarious. I'm kind of obsessed with these people. Yeah. Every now and again, you'll see a an article in the local. News. But the, the thing is, they they, somebody getting they kind of they seem to cite authorities that they that are just made up, like you yeah, know, maritime maybe. law and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah. exactly. Lots of but a lot Spooner of stuff doesn't do that. Maritime. No, that's good. But I'm, uh, it's still very anyone listening. If you don't, if you're not familiar with these guys, yeah, it is hilarious. Oh, the people think, listening to this are very familiar with those I'm guys. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> are they, don't start doing it, folks. Some of them can. are those guys. You will, you will end up in prison. <laughs> maritime yeah. stuff yeah yeah it's all about words isn't it it's like you know the word dock and it's, the word understand yeah. actually means stand under so if a policeman says do you understand say no <laughs> i love that etymology stuff that um my mum used to do it my, she used to do well uh, this word sounds like i can't really think of an example of my head but she would go into this oh well you know yeah like understand yeah it means stand under you know she she would do that all the time, and it was pretty funny. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> she's gone now. <laughs> Did she do cryptic crosswords? Sounds like the kind of person. No, she didn't do that. No, she was just a excellent mother who <laughs> just looked after her kids all the time. She was mint. But um, yeah, I, I'd kind of like to just quickly skim over the skull bandits thing. Yeah, go on. Because, so I think it, most of our audience is American. So. Uh, they're f- they're familiar with dipping tobacco, and I th- yes. I'm not sure. I think they're still allowed the stuff that's in a bag. Yeah, yeah, they can have snooze, and it, it does quite well, I think, in America. Mm. Um, but probably doesn't rival the dip. I mean, the great thing about snooze, as compared to dip, is you don't have to spit all the time. Um, yeah, which is a bit gross. You know, sure. I think ge- generally Americans will spit into a cup, but it does mean walk around with a cup full of spit for yes. hours, which is a bit weird. Um, it was considered quite understandably as being very unhygienic back in the 19th century. And in fact, people, a lot of people were very pleased people were switching to cigarettes because it seemed like a, a, a more yeah. hygienic way of, of taking your nicotine. Um, so Skull Bandits, it's a form of, so let's go back to square one in case people don't know what it is. 
Uh, Snooze is basically very finely chopped tobacco in a little sort of muslin pouch that you put under your top lip, unlike dip, yeah. which you have under your bottom lip, and that's why you don't salivate so much. Um, right. And it delivers nicotine to the body in very much the same way as nicotine um, gum. In fact, nicotine gum is basically based on snooze, I think, in practice. Yeah. And uh, the Swedes like this. The Swedes have been using it, and, and indeed the Scandinavians in general have been using this for a few hundred years. Um, and when the bad news about smoking came out in the 50s and 60s, uh, a lot of people just spontaneously switched back to snooze. Without any encouragement from public health officials of the government, they just did it because they knew instinctively that it was not going to be as bad for you. And um, they quietly got on with it. And then in the mid-80s, Margaret Thatcher was trying to rejuvenate um, a, a bit of Scotland just outside Glasgow, set up an industrial estate, and gave a subsidy to the US Smokeless Tobacco Company, who came over and started producing snooze, when the brand name was Skull Bandits, had a picture of a masked cowboy, quite ahead yeah. of its time, really got the old face mask on. And they sponsored um, Suzuki in, in Grand Prix. Oh, did they? Racing. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, and anyway, the anti-smoking people got wind of this and were outraged, um, particularly outraged because it turned out there was a loophole that meant this stuff could be sold to children, right. um, but also because it looked child-friendly because of the cowboy. So they kicked off and demanded that it be the sale would be banned to children, which nobody really objected to. Uh, and then very quickly said, actually, let's just ban it completely. So England went about, or UK went about banning it. Ireland went about banning it. And then the EEC, as the EU then was, they said, well, we can't be having this because we need a harmonized market. So we'll ban it everywhere. So they banned it everywhere in 1992. Shortly afterwards, Sweden's looking at joining the EU and they love their snooze, as I've mentioned. And the, the the polls are really tight on joining the EU. They're going to have a referendum on it, but it's pretty yeah. much 50-50. And the Swedes say, we want an exemption from this ban on snooze. Yeah. And they got it. Yeah. yeah. So the EU then said, oh, forget about market harmonization. Sweden can still keep using it. Yeah, and only they, when it suits yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and... Um, and Sweden joined. The referendum was 51% to 49%. So it's very, very likely that actually, had wow. they not got this opt-out from the snooze ban, they wouldn't join at all. Um, and that's all well and good. Nobody else is really using it. The democracy snooze. stinks, isn't it? It's ridiculous, yeah. Especially at <laughs> the EU level, I have to say. Yeah. Um, well, it doesn't. It isn't a democracy, is it, the EU? The, it doesn't. It the elected is. part doesn't do anything, does it? It, it? it can't veto legislation and it can't propose legislation. No, it's a bit like the House of Lords, really, the, the European yeah. Parliament. Except <laughs> the House of Lords has got more teeth. Well, arguably. Arguably yeah. so. Um, so, yeah, after a while, anyway, a few, a few researchers, one or two in Sweden, one or two in Britain, one or two in America, start looking at this and going, hang on, this stuff seems pretty safe and Sweden yeah. is got very low smoking rates going down all the time. These days, it's yeah. like 5%, incredibly low. Um, maybe it would be an idea to allow smokers access to snooze. And, um, well, you can read about the rest of it in the book if you're interested. There, yeah, there were sure, various yeah. various fears about snooze causing oral cancer, which it doesn't seem to do. It doesn't seem to cause anything very much. Um, yeah. And the EU have had two chances to get rid of this ban, but they've doubled down every time well, and now it, it looks like they're going to do something quite similar to e-cigarettes and it, what happened in that it, so in the 
because basically in the book it explains that uh, quite clear evidence that it's harmless, well, more or less harmless came yeah, out. More or less, uh, close enough. Yeah. The phenomenon of policy-based evidence went into over overdrive because, yeah. like, we it, the British government loves to talk about evidence-based policy. As soon as you start talking about that, you're going to get policy-based evidence. Indeed. And, and that's, that's what happened. So, yeah, the, the Karolinska Institute, which is a very well-respected university in, in Sweden, but staffed with people who really don't want to share Sweden's success story with Snooze with the yeah. rest of the world. There's this, this sort of taboo around it. I guess it's it's still made by the tobacco industry. I mean, not made by big tobacco, yeah. but it is made by the tobacco industry. It's a tobacco product. A lot of these people just have this vision of the future involving no nicotine use whatsoever. So they're thinking as well, smoking smoking's on its way out anyway. So why would we allow people, someone another another you know type of nicotine use, another way of getting kids addicted, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then on the other side, you have pragmatists. Um, I count myself as, as, as one, I think, would say smoking isn't going to disappear. It hasn't disappeared. Um, yeah. And it's not the government's business anyway. So if people, yeah, it's completely immoral to, to ban what is probably the safest form of nicotine use, you know, recreation nicotine use. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so nothing's ever happened, really. The EU is, it just won't admit it's made a mistake. Yeah. And so that, like, there's now loads of people smoking who would otherwise just be doing snooze. All of a sudden, yeah. A lot of those people be vaping. Uh, well, that's the thing. I mean, vaping vaping's come along now, and also there's these nicotine pouches, which are based on exactly the same principle as snooze, but they contain no nicotine at all. So it's just cellulose with nicotine in. I use oh, them. no tobacco, yeah, no tobacco at all. I use them on on trains and planes and everywhere. I can't vape, which yeah. is nearly everywhere. It's amazing to think that the uh, that governments would. Uh, fight tooth and nail to keep a policy that favors the pharmaceutical industry and <laughs> they make that yes. make that uh, point nicely in the book as well. yeah i mean the, honestly the older i get the more cynical i get about this stuff i do think so much of it i think you're already way ahead of me on this so much yeah. of it just comes down to money really yeah um in various different ways and not just industries either but the the nanny state complex itself is so heavily based on grants and and you know, government handouts and the occasional billionaire donor um, that without them, they wouldn't exist. This is the thing about the mm. paternalistic public health people. Um, logically, looking at it from the point of view of an economist or even a political economist, you go, well, paternalists don't gain anything, do they, really? Right. The whole point of paternalism yeah. is you're trying to, as you see it, help. Yeah. get people, yeah, help, get people to do things for their own good, because you know, obviously you know more than, than they do. You're I am a father, I, that's what, how I act. Yeah. But it's not self-interested, is it, to do that? It's almost exact. Yeah. It's not quite altruism. It's a bit too aggressive, I think, to be called altruism, right? But it is, it's not self-interested. So why do Sp such people Spending exist? other people's money on other people, isn't it? Yes, it comes down to getting money, usually from the government. And if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't be doing that. They wouldn't be doing these things. There, there is no grassroots movement these days. You know, we talked about the anti-saloon league. Sure, just yeah, really an offshoot point, of. Yeah. It was an offshoot of the of the church, really. Yeah. Um, There's no grassroots movement to ban vapes or skull bandits. No, not at all. Or or to 
have taxes on sugary drinks or clamp no. down ultra processed food or go off it's to a self-licking ice cream cone of grant government grant yeah funded very very small organizations very well connected based in london they're yeah. not they're not even membership organizations you couldn't join them if you wanted to no. you know you couldn't join action on smoke and health if you wanted to you can give them money but nobody does hardly yeah it's just and a big leaf so the government can pretend it's not its own idea in the first place yeah they are essentially astroturf groups i guess you could call them yeah that's the they're, word for it yeah. they're there totally. to they're there to legitimize government policy sometimes yeah. not even government policy just policies that the department of health want to do yeah right often yeah. these things are not they're not in the manifesto if you look no. at some of the nanny state policies we've had in britain over the over the years last 10 years say sugar tax was never in a manifesto plain packaging for tobacco was never in a manifesto yeah. uh, stuff to do with the fixed odds betting terminals Minimum pricing for, for alcohol. Tell you what was in the manifesto. 80 mile an hour speed limit on the motorway. Right, still yeah. For that one. Yeah, still <laughs> exactly. They, yeah, they chuck you a bone and then they... But I only do 60 anyway because I'm so tight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, I think that's... I, I, I'll just say, uh, get the book. It's um, The Art of Suppression. suppression. And if folks, if you don't want to, if you don't want to spend your money on it, there are free books you can download by me. One is called Killjoys, a critique of paternalism. It might be up your street. Right. Um, I did one called Selfishness, Greed, and Capitalism a few years ago. Yeah, uh, but Killjoys is quite a good one to read. But yeah, there's others. The Art Suppression, if you're interested, no, but... particularly how prohibition starts. Yeah, it's a really, really well researched book, and. Uh copious footnotes and all that it's, it's got opium it's, I mean, we haven't even touched on all the chapters no, we haven't touched about on opium. Opium. there's one about designer drugs all yeah. sorts it's well worth a read folks. mdma so, yeah so i mean like those things I, I quit all that garbage i don't like it no i don't take <laughs> it i tried it properly <laughs> <I'll tell> you <laughs> that. but you know you get to an age don't you and also it no longer makes sense the ultimate the ultimate argument against prohibition is I could go out and buy whatever I want right now if I wanted to, but I don't. But and it's all yeah. illegal. In other it words, it doesn't make it, any difference, does it? It it doesn't it doesn't really work. It just makes it more dangerous. Yeah. And yeah, it's so it's such a laugh which you see talking about we're gonna have a smoke free generation because he's gradually banning uh tobacco. Yeah. I should explain for American listeners, we've got this lunatic idea coming to force soon that if you're born before two thousand and nine you'll, um, or sorry, after 2009, you'll never be allowed to buy any tobacco products. And Sunak says this is going to lead to a smoke-free generation. I think something like 20% of kids have smoked cannabis, which has yeah. never been legal at all, and has been yeah. very illegal for 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> but sure, we'll be smoke-free with tobacco because we're going to yeah. slowly ban it, even though it's still going to be available literally in shops for all the people to buy. Ridiculous. It is. I mean, I mean like... Do you consult with the shopkeepers on that? Um, the shopkeepers are not very happy, as you can imagine. Because, yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that within a fairly short period of time, the asking for ID in shops is going to get quite surreal. Yeah. Uh, oh, you don't look 34, you only look 32. You know? Yeah. I think it will have died out. People will have just forgotten about it by then. No, they'll have banned the whole lot by then. They'll, yeah. they'll, tobacco in general will be banned by, by 2030, I would say. Completely. Yeah, I think what they'll do is they'll introduce this daft idea and very quickly yeah. everyone will be saying this doesn't make any sense. It's ludicrous. Why, why, why? Yeah. 
that person can buy it, but this person can't. And the government just go, you're right, it is daft. We'll just have a level playing field. They love a level playing field in public health because it just means a total ban for everyone. Yeah. And um, they'll probably give you a, you know, a, a countdown of 12 months or something. They say, right, as of January the 1st next year, it's all going. So switch to e-cigarettes if that's what you want to do. Um, you know, the, the smoking cessation clinics are open, but this is it. We, we are drawing a line. It'd be banned. Honestly, by, by 2030, if not the very latest 2035. But it's, it's going. This is the way of the world. We are losing and we shall continue losing. Yeah, we will. So on that cheerful note, I'll just uh, do our plugs, which are... Uh, oh, have you got anything else you want to plug? Nah. That's, that's... Where can we get the, these books of yours? Well, Amazon. Your, your freebies. Or just, yeah, the freebies. All right, the they're on the IA website, the PDFs for Killjoys and that. Um, right, okay. Just, just Google my name and Killjoys. It comes up. And I'm on Twitter right. as CJ Snowden. CJ Snowden on Twitter. So, yeah, thanks very much for your time. Uh, dear listener, if you want to uh, enjoy the video version of this, say, if you're an audio listener, whatever, the best the best way to see this show is at rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N dot com slash History Homos, we've got loads of back issues and old bonus shows on there. Uh, if you want to see our bonus content, we do one episode a week. Uh, it's, you need to pay a little subscription for that. Everything else is free. Uh, you can also leave us a tip on, right on this episode page on Rockfin or on any of the episode pages. Uh, and uh, that's it, basically. So uh, thank you once again, Chris Christopher Snowden, for coming on the show. And uh, I enjoyed reading your book. And uh, We'll see you next week.